0: Welcome to The Bookshelf, I'm Magdalena Clough. Tonight, we continue our reading of A Key to Treehouse Living by Elliot Reed. The novel is written in the form of a glossary-style list, which our protagonist, William, compiles as a way to understand the world around him. Now, here's Trevor Rao reading A Key to Treehouse Living.
1: Expectation. The brain spends a huge amount of time expecting things. The brain lives on patterns the way a blade of grass lives on sunlight. When you look at a single leaf on a twig, and you know right off the bat you're seeing a tree, that's you expecting without knowing. Other, more complicated expectations are the more interesting ones because of how often they backfire. For example, one day I was in my tree fort when Ned came up through the trap door with a bag of lemons in his backpack. I said something like, hooray Hooray lemonade! and Ned then pointed through the window at the group of kids who played for the crushers who were coming at us through the bushes. We had expected to juice those lemons, but it turned out we needed to use them against the crushers. Put a nail through a lemon, whip it out the window of a treehouse, be naked with it, that kid will probably move on. My uncle learned to stop expecting things from Isabella because she kept changing her mind all the time. One day she was moving to Florida, the next she was back at my uncle's house with the astronaut in tow. The next she had an apartment in the city, the next she was gone, nowhere to be found, then the next she was back again, and so on. When he expected her and the astronaut to move into the mansion with us, he started building an addition. That was a mistake. People don't often say what they're really going to do. Ned told me he was going to help me get revenge on the crushers, but then a little while later I saw him walking down the street with them like they were his friends. When I told Isabella I'd help get her canoe out of the reeds, though, I helped her. I was six years younger than Isabella and my boat had less draft, but she knew I could paddle hard and she knew I liked her. So when she saw me coming, she expected she'd be saved. Facts. A fact is a statement of truth as opposed to a statement that is questionable. Facts make up what we call knowledge. On the other hand, lots of people go around living their life with certain facts drilled into their brains. Facts that cause them to behave a certain way. Facts they've either never questioned or have given up questioning. I'll list a few items that might, at face value, given what you know up to this point, appear factual. One, horses head for the woods during storms. Two, plastic forts are quickly abandoned. Three, balloons are often lost in the wind. Four, my uncle played the bugle. Five, spring comes before summer. Six, animals love the dark. 7. In the dark, you print photos using light. 8. Gravity exists, but not for balloons and not if you've been turned to smoke. 9. Lemons with nails through them hurt when they hit you. 10. A wild child can catch a goose by hand. Of those 10 things, only two are facts. Statement 1, for instance, is not a fact, because it's not a fact everywhere. That's another thing about facts. If it's an actual fact, it will be true everywhere. I've heard about horses in Mongolia that seek the shelter of a cave before the shelter of a tree when they feel a storm coming. I've heard about a boy in Georgia who slept every night in his plastic fort until one day he grew too large to get back in. Statement three is, in fact, a fact. It is a fact that here and in a different state and in a different country, balloons are lost by their handlers. The first sad fact we learn in this life is that balloons fly away. That fact, and the fact of gravity, are probably the first two facts we're forced to confront at a very early age. You must go inside now, no more playing outside. May sound like a fact, but it isn't. If instead someone says, unless you go inside right now, you'll be totally vaporized by lightning. Look there, there's lightning in that cloud. You will look at the cloud, consider the source. Is he an alarmist, or does he often have courage? Fact, not all astronauts are courageous and decide whether or not to risk it. Faulty wishing. You must wish correctly if you want your wish to come true. Let's say you're sitting with your uncle on the porch, and you're watching a storm come in. The horses are moving to the cover of the stand of cedars, and a little bunch of blue balloons has come loose from a birthday party somewhere, and is flying skyward and sideways. Let's say your uncle tells you that wishes come true if you wish upon balloons you spot floating off to the balloon afterlife. Let's say he tells you that he's already wished on two of those four balloons, and that you should wish on the other two, quick, and you wish. You say, I wish I could find out why my dad left, and your uncle sighs. He sighs and shakes his head, and says that your wish was a dumb one. Not just because the wish was dangerous, but because, and by reading this you're learning the easy way, that by saying a wish aloud, you are cursing it. This is especially the case with wishing on balloons. After he's corrected you, he might say, wish for something sensible if you're going to wish. The Wish for money. And you don't want to. But you want to keep the peace with him, and so you pretend to wish for money. He looks at you and believes you are wishing for money. Your fake wish is that your uncle wins at the horse races so that he can pay off the expensive addition to the mansion. But your real wish, the deeper wish, is that everything in your life would change for good. You wish for anything else, because your attempts to change your world have so far come to nothing. You place your wish on the fourth balloon just before it disappears behind a distant row of trees, and then, in the next instant, at the exact moment when the fourth blue balloon disappears, a bolt of lightning strikes a dead tree by the pond and sets it aflame. From a hole in the flaming tree, pop four little balls of fire which go arcing into the pond, landing with sizzles in the water, and then an instant later, four fish jump from the water in quick succession. You learn, then and there, that flaming birds change to fish when you put them out in a pond. And so you could say that fish live not just in ponds, but also in trees. Freefall. When she jumps out of a helicopter, airplane, or hot air balloon, she starts freefalling toward the earth at tremendous speeds. She plunges through clouds. She... Gets a good look at the fields and the forests, the immense blues and greens and browns, the whites of the clouds below her, and then at some point she deploys her parachute. My uncle and I were waiting there when Isabella landed in the field at the little airport. You couldn't help but look at her and feel happy. The astronaut landed right after Isabella, but he wasn't smiling. To him, the freefall was nothing special. After the freefall was the first time Isabella had really looked at me since the day she'd met the astronaut. Her parachute was made from the same stuff as El Andero's weather balloons, light, multicolored material that catches the eye from miles away, reflecting sunlight. Parachutes can serve other secondary functions, such as housing for gypsies. Of all the showy and mysterious sorts of structures human beings live in, the gypsy-style parachute house, see, gypsy parachute house, is by far the most wonderful. Fandalahalani. This is a string of syllables you use to stop authorities, or daddies who are trying to interfere with your plans. When I was little, before Ned joined the Crushers, me and Ned and Isabella had to use the magic syllables a lot. Me and Isabella had other words too, and we wrote them down, but now I can't remember them. Isabella made up a whole fairy tale to explain my existence and why we could do magic. Isabella said that she'd been out in the woods picking berries when she was in third grade, and that she'd found me sleeping in a basket. She said she brought me home and hid me in the basement and that I had special psychic powers, which was why people thought I was a weirdo. The story would change a little every time she told it, but I'd always go along with it, no matter who she was telling it to. She once said we could communicate telepathically, and that we'd dream the same dreams, that we'd both have the same beta fish nightmare. Then, one day, she stopped telling the fairy tale and started telling the real one, about how my mom had died and my dad had disappeared. Fondalahalani, back when it was a word that had power, was something you could call someone to his face and he wouldn't know what you were doing to him as long as you said it in a casual way. If you said it while wiggling your left pinky toe and you clapped twice after saying it, the Fondalahalani was given extra power. If three people did it at once, you were sure to get what you wanted. One time, we were in the basement with a bunch of old film we'd found in the closet, the same place where I found the enlarger, my uncle's old skis, and two five-gallon tanks of gasoline. We had the film taped up on a window so we could go through the negatives one by one and try to figure out the story of where my father had taken these pictures when we heard my uncle coming down the stairs. We all did Fond la at once, and it worked. He turned around and went back up. Fallacy. A fallacy is something you believe to be true, but which is not actually a fact, and believing which brings disaster. To actually believe Fondalahalani works instead of just saying you believe it and really knowing that it only worked because of a coincidence would be a fallacy. The ultimate fallacy is the one held by the person who thinks he can fly. In the case of the astronaut floating in space, it is not a fallacy that he can fly. But for everyone else, even pilots, to adopt as a fact the idea that you can fly is to invite calamity. It is a fallacy that you love someone if you say you love him, but then you run away. Flight. The act of moving through the air without touching the ground and without using anything like vines or monkey bars. Also, the act of running away from something or someone quickly, and by any means necessary. Gypsies. Gypsies travel by means of Winnebago's or similar motor caravans, and they travel in groups. The largest, or king Winnebago, will be followed by a collection of beat-up vehicles covered in countless dents, both large and small, vehicles belching black smoke, vehicles that appear as if they've recently broken down. Gypsies are sort of like hillbillies, but much more superstitious and also much more ready to accept alternative ways of thinking. Gypsies excel at finding ways to hustle, see methods of the hustle. This makes people who aren't gypsies jealous, see anger comma jealous, including most of the people living in the mansions near my uncles. Often, I'd be back on my way from the treehouse when I'd see a police car stopped at the Winnebago village, the policeman hassling some gypsies about camping there. Getting hassled is nothing new for gypsies, though. They're used to it. Gypsies get hassled everywhere they go, and will just move on to somewhere else once they're done with their hustle. Gypsy Parachute House If you happen to be lucky enough to find yourself in the vicinity of people living in a house made of an old parachute, do yourself a favor and ask them if you can go inside. When the sun is shining through the fabric being inside of a parachute house feels like you're in the middle of a bowl of jelly beans when it's storming outside being in a parachute house is like being inside the body of a living thing in my experience the owners of parachute houses are gypsies though there are almost certainly owners from all kinds of backgrounds as for the gypsies they always knew how to anchor the parachute securely in the ground using whittled down wooden stakes and sewn in grommets so i was never scared No matter how intense the storm. I remember one time being inside the parachute house right as a big storm was picking up. There were four gypsies playing music and singing. The parachute fabric was bouncing around us like an amoeba, and when it brushed up against our skin, it got us wet. Then a piece of hail the size of a popcorn kernel punched a hole in the parachute and landed at my feet. One of the gypsies put down his flute, picked up the hailstone, and danced around with it pinched in his fingers, laughing as he danced. For gypsies, hail can be good luck, especially if it comes inside a parachute house. Groats. Cereal grains, kind of like oatmeal, that have been served to horses and which the horses have turned down. Some health food stores package and sell the refused grains. Isabella ate a lot of groats one summer before she met the astronaut. She said she'd fallen in love with one of the guys who was living in a Winnebago a few miles down the road. She said the groats were healthy and good for her, but I knew she was just trying to look good for the guy in the Winnebago. One morning, at breakfast, my uncle said that the guy in the Winnebago was a gypsy, and Isabella said that actually he'd come from Seattle. I laughed because I thought it was funny that coming from Seattle meant you couldn't be a gypsy, but Isabella thought I was laughing at her, so she got angry and threw a handful of groats. Getting in Cars with Strangers Of all the cautionary tales adults tell the children, the tale of The Stranger's Invitation is the all-time strongest. Usually, he drives a white van in the story, He comes alongside you as you're walking home alone and asks you if you need a ride. There are some variations. Sometimes the stranger is driving a beat-up station wagon, and it's a woman instead of a man. Sometimes the stranger is dangling a piece of candy out from the window of the car, and the stupid child decides to go for the bait. Sometimes the van rolls up, the stranger asks the question, and against your better judgment, you get in the van. Let's say you're walking home from your tree fort one day in the spring. Let's say that you lost track of time on account of the fact that you were tricked into a wild goose chase by a passing child. And, let's say, for the sake of the story, that the passing child's goose chase began as the fallacious claim that there would be a fistfight between two boys at the old dump on the far edge of the park, which ended with your going all the way there only to have the kid who led you there realize at the last minute that the fistfight was actually scheduled for tomorrow as opposed to today. And so you're walking home much later than you normally would. So late that the last mile of your walk at the rate you're traveling will be a walk in darkness. Let's say that you're looking at the sun, and it's only a hand's breadth from the horizon, so you calculate it to be about an hour from dark, and you haven't even passed the laundromat yet, which puts you at least 90 minutes away from home. If you'd planned ahead, you would have brought a knife, but as it is, you might as well be walking naked through a chicken hawk's den. And let's say that's when the van rolls up alongside you, in that moment when you're most desperate, And let's say that the van is being driven by one of the hillbilly neighbors that you've seen burning tires outside the trailer, visible from your uncle's mansion. The hillbilly's wearing sunglasses, though it's crepuscular, and you glimpse, through a window in the side of the van, that there's a person back there, but all you can see is a shadow. You feel like you've seen the driver before, but you don't know where. The driver offers you a ride. What do you do? If you refuse the ride, you risk making this person an enemy, and you risk hurting his feelings. But still, there's a chance that it's a trick, that he won't drive the van back to your neighborhood and will end up taking you somewhere else, someplace terrible and unknown to you, someplace where there are people who want to chain you up and slowly cut off your arms and legs. But let's say you think about walking home by yourself, unarmed, in the dark, the predator's watching you from the trees, and then you decide to chance the ride with the hillbillies. You open the van door and get in, and before you even have time to put on your seatbelt, the van is racing down the road doing 50 in a 30. The van smells like a bathroom, and you look behind you and see not one but three people back there, in the darkness, holding large glass bottles. One of them is Carla the cleaning lady, and she's French kissing the guy next to her. The driver grins at you, saying nothing, showing off the gold in his teeth, and turns up the heavy metal that's coming from the static on the radio. At this point, you are regretting your decision. And you come to regret your decision even more when the van sails past your uncle's driveway. You would, at this point, ask to be let out of the van. You would politely tell the driver who has just driven past your uncle's driveway that you'd really like to be let out of the van, please. You would want to cry. Then the driver says something unintelligible to the people in the back and they start laughing. You'd better be saying your prayers then. If, however, the driver tells you not to worry, that he knows your uncle, and that the two of them go way back, and that your uncle would want you to be along for the ride, and Carla passes you a bottle and you drink from it, you might begin to feel a little better. You drink the warm, flat beer, and it's like a skunk peed in your mouth, and the driver laughs at how you looked as you drank it, and his laughter would make you mad, mad enough to where you chug the hot skunk pee, you let it drip down your shirt, and the driver stops laughing. He turns up the heavy metal. You shut your eyes and try not to puke, The van turns off the main road and goes bouncing down a dirt track, falling into and out of foot-deep potholes. You're preparing yourself for death when, all of a sudden, the dirt road becomes a circular, dirt-filled field. A clearing surrounded by tall trees and the driver of the van stomps the pedal to the floor. The stomping of the pedal to the floor forces you back into your seat and the passengers behind you hoot like ghouls in a haunted house. The driver is cackling and you... You're screaming louder than you've ever screamed before, but the urge to flee has left you completely. You grip the seat beneath you as the driver wrenches the steering wheel to the left, and the van goes sliding sideways toward the tree line at the far edge of the circular clearing. You are, at this point, peeing your pants. Or maybe it's the beer spilling from Carla's bottle. She's leaning up from the back and yelling something at the driver, and you can't tell if it's happy or mad, and you wonder if you've become the victim of a collective suicide. But then... The last moment, the van gracefully curves its rear around so the front points toward the center of the mud pit as the whole van slides sideways around the center. Mud is slapping against the windows in brown, wet sheets as the van slides. The sun is almost down and the van slides seven, eight more times around the center. The donuts end too soon and you beg the driver for more. He says that enough is enough and that it's time to go home. He takes off his sunglasses, and you see that his is a kind but somehow sad run-down sort of face. He drives you home, where your uncle takes one look at the van and lets you inside without a question. Gold in the mouth. Gold doesn't flake or crumble or make a mark on paper. It just sits, coloring the light. Once it's out of the ground, people want their gold to be kept safe from thieves in a bank or in their mouth. Gold is also found in jewelry, coins, and the tip of my uncle's pen. Gold attracts gold. When the bandits came for Alberta Otter, they were looking for gold, and it was most likely dangling from their wrists as they knocked her door down. Gold makes a unique sound when tapped with other gold. I could hear from my bedroom when my uncle was working on a crossword puzzle in his chair in the living room. He'd tap the gold tip of his pen against his one golden molar when he was thinking hard about a word. Sunlight turns golden on the leaves of certain trees at certain times of day, when all the dust floating around in your treehouse is visible. Once, when Isabella and the astronaut came to the mansion for lunch, we all went swimming off the dock. Isabella took off her golden engagement ring, put it on the wood of the dock, and jumped in the water. Then my uncle went in, and finally the astronaut. It was hot. The clouds looked like huge popcorn. Isabella's ring was sitting there on the dock, gleaming. I put the ring in my mouth and held it there for a long time, past when they all started looking for it. The astronaut was diving, Kept coming up gasping, and Isabella saw me giggling with my mouth closed. That's how she guessed it. Good manners, comma, the importance of. You could say that the first humans knew it was bad manners to poop in the middle of the trail right where people had to walk. There's no doubt that good manners exist in the animal kingdom as well, and probably always have. A well-mannered dog, for example, won't eat from another dog's food bowl. If you find that you're about to do something that's bad manners, you'll feel a weird sickness in your stomach. If you feel like you're about to have bad manners, try a thought exercise and see if it doesn't help you shake off the urge. Here's an example of a thought exercise that might help you. It's Easter. Three kids are running across the lawn in pursuit of eggs and jelly beans, holding baskets full of what they've already found. They're running because they've realized that one of the places they forgot to check for loot is at the base of the old dead tree by the pond. The three children are running side by side. One of the kids trips on a root and falls, spilling her basket across a patch of mud and spitting from her mouth a few half-chewed beans when her body hits the ground. The well-mannered kid will stop running, help the fallen girl to her feet, and give her half of his jelly beans. That tripping root could have appeared before the foot of any of the children, and it's not fair that she should be left with no jelly beans because it was she who tripped. The well-mannered thing to do is share the jelly beans with the fallen girl. Bad manners would be to laugh and run ahead to the rotten tree, snatch the eggs hidden in its claw-like roots, and keep them all for yourself. Hail Damage One of the number one gypsy hustles is traveling to areas that have been hailed on and repairing hail damage. In the spring, after it hails, expect to see gypsies. Expect to see them come in with signs advertising the dangers of hail damage. What starts as a nick in your windshield can become a spiderweb crack and shatter without warning. Lucky for you, even the most extensive hail damage can be repaired in just a few minutes by a technician with the proper specialized equipment. Or, don't show up to a business meeting driving a car that has been pummeled by hail. You will appear desperate. Don't drive to the body shop and be overcharged for a job by someone who isn't a specialist. He will repair your first dent for free, just because he's being nice and has good manners. If you like how he fixed the first dent though, it's bad manners not to have him do the rest of the dents. Find a gypsy near you, if he hasn't already found you, and ask him about hail damage, dent repair, and glass filling. Nobody's better at repairing hail damage than a gypsy who has followed the severe weather with his family and tools in tow. Have a blowout. A flat tire is a type of blowout. So is a huge party, like a cookout but with more people in attendance. A child of the word blowout is the term blown out, which is used to talk about a whole variety of things, but ultimately is a way of describing your opinion about something. Look at that. That place is totally blown out. I can't believe they're raising children in there, said someone standing on the porch of his mansion as he pointed to a lonely double-wide trailer on a ridge where four hillbillies could be seen throwing tires into a smoking campfire, see campfire, and listening to country music on a boombox. Headstone. This can refer to a band some of my cousin Isabella's friends were in, to a rock thrown at somebody's head, or to the big gray slab they put in the ground over where a body is buried. The band Headstone was a three-piece hardcore group that practiced in my uncle's basement one time. The music was loud, and they were banging their heads as they played. When practice ended, one of the guitarists came upstairs and found me in the kitchen. He had a shaved, pimply head and wore a shirt that looked like it had come off a body in the morgue. I was looking at a map of the park that I'd made the day before, minding my own business. When he opened the fridge, stole one of my Cokes, and came over to the table. I remember his shirt, wet and warm with the pimple sweat, brushing up against my arm. Then I remember him saying, I know you, young dude. And I remember him pointing at me while he spoke. Your mom was batshit, dude. And then your pops bailed out. I remember wondering what he meant by telling me that my mom was made of batshit. That was the last I saw or heard of the band Headstone. Headstones, however, you can still find anywhere. Headstones are a very specific kind of throwing rock in that they're selected with the intention of being thrown at somebody's head. You'll know the stone you have as a headstone if, when you pick it up, you become blind with rage and your jaw clenches up and all you can think is where's the head that this headstone is for, and all you can do is go directly off and find it. The last kind of headstone, the kind you find in graveyards, makes you feel a lot differently when you touch it. When you die, they bury you in the ground and then put the headstone over where your head is now, six feet down and in a coffin and they carve your name into the stone so that when people come to look for you, they know where to find you. If it's a headstone belonging to somebody named Wabash Mandicott, and you're playing hide-and-seek in the graveyard with a couple of kids from the neighborhood because the construction site has a fence around it, and you're crouching, winded, in the shade of the stone, winded from a run because Ned counted to ten way too fast, you'll feel the warm stone and the sharp carvings of engraved words against your cheek, which will be pressed against that stone in an effort to stay unseen. In that case, the headstone would be warm and comforting, and would make you giggle if you looked at the name carved into it. Wabash Mandicott. And your giggling would blow your cover. If, however, your uncle brings you to the same graveyard one day out of the blue, and takes you to a headstone with the name Susie Tice carved into it, and below that left us all all alone too soon... And your uncle says here she is son though he is not actually your father he's your father's brother so you are not actually his son your actual father is missing perhaps he's alive on the moon or in a different country just for sure not here beside you beside you is a headstone that means your mother is below you this headstone will be cold and covered in some invisible grit kicked up by a hard rain and that's basically how you'll feel, too, when you touch the carved letters of your weird last name.
0: You have been listening to A Key to Treehouse Living, a novel by Elliot Reed, read by Trevor Rao. This episode of The Bookshelf was produced by Chris Massini and me, Magdalena Clough. Music by Dr. Turtle. Executive producer is Vern Wyndham. You can find this and other past episodes of The Bookshelf online at spokanepublicradio.org.